Welcome. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Galatians chapter 2 there in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 2. We're going to uh, look at a passage there. We're going to move around some others as well, but uh, Galatians chapter 2 is going to be kind of the main passage we're going to look at this morning. And so we finished out a series, as I mentioned earlier, called When People Disagree. So it's been a short series. This is the fourth week, the final week. Uh, it wasn't really designed to be a lengthy series necessarily, but uh, I felt like the Lord just kind of put this on my heart a number of weeks ago. Uh, probably for you, you've noticed in these recent days, the last few months or uh, this whole year, I guess, starting towards the end of last year, man, there's just a lot of disagreement in our culture. And uh, it seems like nobody's getting along. And that's not only in our culture, but sometimes it even comes right down to the level of uh, our own personal relationships at times. There are so many just divisive topics that it seems like become part of the everyday conversation piece that just creates even more and more uh, uh, division between people, and it all stems back to disagreement. And so I felt like, you know, let's just jump into this and let's look at what Scripture says because Scripture doesn't shy away from the topic. It tells us, you know, how to navigate disagreement. We're not ever going to be able to avoid it always, but it is important how we manage it. And so our goal through this series has really just been to look at disagreement from a, a biblical perspective, put some uh, principles there in place, and some tracks to run on. So two of the most important have been, just kind of as a recap, that whenever we come to a place of disagreement, we've got to keep in mind that truth must never be compromised. We never ultimately compromise truth or give away truth for the sake of unity. That is a way to disaster. And so truth should never be compromised, but we also have to keep in mind that relationships should always be prioritized. And those two things can happen, and they can happen together at the same time. For a lot of people, they mistakenly think, well, if I stand on truth, whether it's in my marriage or whether it's in a friendship or in my church or you know, in the culture, if I stand on truth, then I'm just going to lose relationships, right? Some relationships aren't going to be able to flourish if that's the case. That is not the case. And we should be able to stand on truth at the same time, prioritize relationships so that both of them can happen, right? The, the truth wins and relationships win. And Scripture makes that very clear. So those are really two of the tracks to run on. Truth, never compromise. Relationships always ultimately prioritize. We talked about um, how we as Christians are all in the same bin. We're all just kind of jump, you know, jumbled up in the same bin. And every single one of us, we come from different perspectives. We've got different backgrounds. You've got different political views. Let's just treat this one assembly today as a church, okay? There are more than just us who are part of our church, but let's just say we are the church and represented in this room are going to be a variety of perspectives in life. I mean, on a lot of different stuff as it relates to cultural hot topics, as it relates to politics, as it relates to uh, uh, relationships, as it relates to all kinds of stuff. And yet through Jesus, if we have a relationship with Christ, we're all tossed in that same bin and we got to find a way to make it work. And uh, we're going to disagree, but we've got to manage those disagreements. And the most important thing is that for believers, we are in Christ. That is the most important common denominator is our relationship with him. Everything else should be able to be sorted out. Even if we disagree, ultimately we can still see our relationships prioritized. The reason this series is important as well, not just for unity within the body of Christ, but when you think about life outside the church, you know, outside of a relationship with Jesus, here's the thing, man, listen, do not miss this, that there are people who don't know Christ that are gauging how much of him they want based on what they see in you. <laughs> and they're deciding about Jesus based on what they see reflected in your life. And if what they see in you and in me is just an argumentative, mean-spirited, 
unable to get along mentality, then that, if they know you're a believer, is going to wash over and, and taint the way they view Jesus. And so in a lot of ways, our testimony is at stake. And if you don't handle disagreements well in your office or in your workplace, if I don't handle disagreements well in the circles that I navigate, if we don't handle those things well, they ultimately speak to our testimony as followers of Jesus. So we need to get this right. We've got to ultimately get this right. So that's what we've been looking at specifically. So today I want us to close out the series with a message simply entitled, When Disagreement Requires Correction. When Disagreement requires correction. Probably I would be willing to say for most people in this room, you're not really, really super comfortable with correction. You're not comfortable correcting another person. Now, if you're a teacher and you've got a class of third graders or a class of middle schoolers or a class of uh, high schoolers, then you're, accom- you're, you're accustomed to correction. That's what you do. You've got red ink for a reason. But for the rest of us, most of us, we're not super comfortable with just correcting other people. And yet, when we look at the topic of disagreement, here's the thing. Correction is going to be a part of our life experience. There are going to be times when we need to deliver correction, and there are going to be times when we need to receive correction. And, and, and when you trace it all out, here's the thing. When somebody disobeys, when you disobey God, when I disobey God, where that starts is with a disagreement. All right. So if I read in Scripture... Let's say I read a passage that says, forgive one another. And let's say there's somebody in my life who's really hurt me that I'm, I'm not forgiving. And, and, I, and I don't want to forgive them. And I don't plan on working on forgiving them. Right? Let's just say that, that's the picture. When I read that passage that says, forgive one another, in the same way that Christ has forgiven you, and I'm not planning to forgive and I don't want to forgive, what I'm doing is I am disagreeing with God about that command. I'm saying, God, I don't think this applies to me because after all, here's what they did to me. They did this and they did this and they did this. And here's why I'm justified in my unforgiveness. And when I disobey, I know this is deep, but this is the second service, not that early service. So you can follow me here that when I disobey, what I'm doing is the very beginning part of it. I'm disagreeing with God. When you disobey, you're disagreeing with God. I mean, it's, 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 it's your disagreement stated through disobedience. So here's the thing, when a person disobeys, if that begins with disagreement, doesn't it make sense that God is going to put people in our lives that as we disagree with God and ultimately step into disobedience, doesn't it make sense he's going to send us people who are going to then correct us? Doesn't it make sense then that sometimes you might be the person that God puts in the path of another person who's not walking in truth anymore, they're disobeying. Doesn't it make sense that God may choose to use you at times to bring correction in their lives as well? Sometimes it's to correct wrong behavior. Sometimes it's to correct wrong attitude. Sometimes it's to just correct wrong thinking. But correction is something that God often uses. And it makes sense because it's what parents do. It's what parents do. Here's, here's, what, here's what a lot of us tend to think. When someone tells us, listen, you need to be willing to correct another person, a lot of times we'll, here's what we'll say to get out of it. Well, I don't think we're supposed to judge. Some of you may have already thought that. I, I think I disagree with that preacher guy up there because I don't think he's supposed to tell us to correct people because, after all, aren't we supposed to not judge others? Judging and correcting are two totally different things. Two totally different things. If you judge another person, whenever we are being judgmental, we are all, what we are doing is we are looking down on someone because of who they are or what they've done. 
There, there's a reason that we choose to look down on another person. It is unloving, it is sinful, it is disobedient. God tells us multiple places, James included, not to judge others. But when we are correcting, that's different from being judgmental. When we are correcting, it's one of the most loving things we can do. Right? Say, for example, with your parent, when you were a child, if you disobey, and, and meaning you disagree with a standard, if your mom tells you, let, let's say you're, you're in the store, you're in a little 7-Eleven, you're five years old, and your mom's checking out, and you're only this tall, right, because you're five, maybe this tall as a five-year-old, somewhere in there, and uh, strategically, they've placed the M&Ms right there at the eye level for those five-year-olds, and your mom's checking out, and you're looking around, and you look up, and mom's not looking because she's paying the bill. And you snag those M&M, you know, peanuts because they're better than the plain M&Ms, by the way. Don't disagree. And so you snag those, you put them in your pocket, and you get home. And mom finds them. Where'd you get those M&Ms? I got them at the store. And mom says, oh, we didn't pay for those. What is she going to do? She's going to say, take those M&Ms. We're going to take them back to the store. And you're going to what? You're going to apologize for what you did. She's not being judgmental. <laughs> she's being loving. And you say, well, I'm sorry, Mom, I already ate them. She'll say, well, then you get that wrapper, and we're going back to that lady at the store, and we're going to pay for them, and you're going to apologize. And she's not being judgmental. She's being loving because she doesn't want you going down the track of just stealing candy everywhere you go, right? You're not going to have a lot of friends if you grow up to be that way. She's being loving through her correction. So when we look in Scripture and we see these passages like we're going to look at today, that talk about a willingness to confront disagreement through correction, there is a very wrong way to do that that's going to create a, just absolute heartache and disaster, but there's also a right way to correct. And that's what we're going to look at this morning in numerous passages. And in Galatians, we're going to see an actual living example of how that played out. A couple of principles this morning. Here's the first one, correcting and being corrected ultimately are to be expected in our lives. Correcting another person, that's a part of life, right? There are going to be times where you're going to have to be the one who corrects someone else. And it's not going to be enjoyable and it's not going to be comfortable, but you're going to be the person who's going to hold, ultimately help them to get back on the right track because they are off into the high weeds. It's to be expected. And then there are going to be times when other people are going to come to you and they're going to correct you. And it might be in the right way or it might be in the wrong way and you're going to feel the hair on the back of your neck stand up and you're going to get all sideways a little bit and you're going to want to bow up and you're going to want to come back at them, right? And you're going to remember these verses, hopefully. They're going to help you to receive that correction in the right way. Correcting and being corrected are to be expected. Look in 2 Timothy. You don't have to turn there for the sake of time. Just look at these passages on the screen behind me. 2 Timothy has a lot to say about this topic of correction. We start in 2 Timothy Chapter 3, verse 16 and verse 17. Take a look at this passage on the screen behind me. It says, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. Here's what Scripture is helpful for. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that, here's the purpose, the man of God, or we could say the woman of God as well, may be adequate and equipped for every good work. One of the functions of Scripture itself is not just to point you to Jesus. One of the functions of Scripture itself is not just to encourage you. It's not just to give you direction or instruction in life. But one of the specific primary functions of the Scriptures here, Paul only lists four things. He says it's good for profitable for teaching, for training, for reproof, and he says specifically for correction. And one of the reasons we have Scripture 
is to correct us, to step up into our space when we're on the wrong road and to get us back onto the right road again. That's one of the primary functions of God's Word. That's one of the reasons. Let's just be honest for a second. Whenever you go through those seasons of drift in your Christian life where you, your heart grows a little bit cool towards God and towards the things of God, and your heart grows a little hotter towards doing things your own way. One of the reasons when we drift that we often demonstrate that by drifting from his word is because we don't want it to confront us. Right? Let's just be honest for a second. Let's be transparent. When we are in a place where we want to be the Lord of our own life as believers and we want to call the shots and we've got an agenda of things that we want to do in our lives and we don't really want God showing us what he wants, we don't come to this word. Why? Because it will correct us. It will get up into our space and it will show us where we're wrong and show us what we need to do to be right again. That's one of the functions of Scripture. The chapter just before this in chapter 2 we looked at this passage last Sunday, verse 24, verse 25. It says, the Lord's bondservant, that's you and me as Christians, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all. Able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. There is a command for us with those who are fellow believers, to be faithful in correcting. Specifically, how do we do it? With gentleness. Why do we do it? Into verse 25, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. We correct. We correct in a certain way, gently. We correct with a certain desire to lead a person back, ultimately, to truth again. 2 Timothy chapter 4 Verse 1 and 2, Paul says to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, he says to Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. You don't ever get a day off from this, living and preaching out the truth. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So when we think about this topic of correction, it's not judging. It's not being judgmental. It is a function that God tells us that we should expect. We should expect to correct others, and we should expect to be corrected by others as well. So the book of Galatians, that's where, we, that's where I had you turn to. The whole entire book of Galatians is one big example of Paul stepping into an area where there was disagreement and bringing correction. The whole book of Galatians is an example of this. Now, there was an issue going on, and there's a context to Galatians, and the context is this, that in the region of Galatia, there were churches planted, filled with believers who had trusted their lives to Jesus. They were Christians. They were followers of Christ. They had been saved by grace through their faith, right? They had genuinely stepped into a relationship with God, they understood the gospel, and the simple gospel is this, that all of us have blown it. Every single one of us have sinned. There's not a one of us on this earth who deserves heaven, that if we were to stand before God and say, God, I've been a really good person, more than likely he's going to say, well, granted, you've got a different definition of good than I do. You've got a different standard of good than I do, but we're not here to talk about your moments of goodness. We're here to talk about your sin. That's the issue for every one of us. 
And what the gospel tells us is that our goodness cannot ever outweigh our sin. We can never work our way to God or get good enough to deserve God. What he did was, by his grace, he sent his son Jesus to ultimately pay for all of our sin. And when he died on the cross and when he rose again from the dead, it was paid in full. That, that, that was the testimony, right? It was paid in full. He said it from the cross to tell us that it is finished. There's no other payment necessary. So that, as the New Testament tells us, whenever we come to a place where we turn from our sin, that's been the issue to begin with, when we turn from our sin and ultimately invite Jesus to forgive us and to take over, we trust everything to him. The New Testament picture there of believing in Jesus means we believe to the point to where it's as though we just surrender everything to him. Once we do that and we convey that as simply as a prayer, Lord Jesus, I've sinned, forgive me, and take over. When we do that, we are saved, not by any mixture of our goodness, but by grace and by grace alone. Here's what was happening in the churches in Galatia. These believers had trusted that, but there were a group of people called the Judaizers. You know who the Judaizers were? They had a Jewish heritage. They had a Jewish background. They were Jews by birth and by heritage, and yet they had begun to infiltrate these churches with a new gospel. There is no such thing as a new gospel. There is the gospel. There is no new and improved gospel. And what they brought into these churches was this false belief, this false doctrine that, no, it's not enough for you to just trust Jesus. You have to add to that trust your adherence to the Old Testament Mosaic law, specifically circumcision, which we read of beginning in Genesis, that was a rite that demonstrated to God's people that they were truly part of the family of God. So these Judaizers are infiltrating these churches in the region of Galatia, bringing a different gospel, much like cults will do today. Jesus is part of it, they will say, but he's not the whole thing. You need more. He'll get you to first base, but you need to do good works, or you need to jump through this, or you need to do that to get to second, to third, and ultimately home. That's what the Judaizers were doing. Now, Jesus is a part of it, they would say, but you got to adhere to the law to be saved, they would say. <clears throat> Paul would disagree. Classic case of disagreement. One group of teachers saying one thing, Paul on the other side saying something different. What was at stake was truth. This was not opinion. This was truth. And so what Paul did, because of their disagreement that led to disobedience, this false teaching, he began to correct. And the whole entire book of Galatians is one just a magnificent correction of this false doctrine that reminds us that we are saved by grace alone through faith. Well, it's here in the midst of this letter that Paul gives us a specific example, and we read it in chapter 2. The setting here is that Paul is about to correct one of the most well-known leaders of the early church. He's going to be listed here as Cephas, but he is better known by his name, Peter. And so let's jump in here, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, and let's see how this example shows Paul stepping into the arena of correction for a specific purpose and why it was so necessary that he did. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, let's begin there. It says, but when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. There's a picture of a very bold correction. Paul, one monumental Mount Rushmore figure in the New Testament, 
who is confronting Peter, another monumental Mount Rushmore figure in the New Testament, over a sin that Peter was committing. Now, when Paul says here that he did this because Peter stood condemned, it doesn't mean that Peter had somehow lost his salvation. It doesn't mean that Peter was going to hell. It doesn't mean any of that. This is just a simple way of saying that Peter was in the wrong. His thinking was wrong-footed, so to speak. It was, it, it was worthy of condemnation the way Peter was thinking and acting here. So what was it that he was doing? Well, let's look down a little further. Verse 12. Paul says, for prior to the coming of certain men from James, James, one of the Jewish leaders, actually the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, for prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, Peter did. Peter was a Jew. He'd realized along the way God had shown him in the book of Acts, miraculous fashion, that there was no designation between Jew and Gentile, that we're all saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. He says, but here, before the men of James came, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. He had no problems with it. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. So undoubtedly, that last phrase shows us these would not necessarily have been men that James perhaps would have approved of. These were Judaizers who believed that Jesus wasn't enough. You had to also adhere to the Old Testament Mosaic law. So there Peter is, he's sitting at the Gentile table, right? You see him in the church there in Antioch? It's potluck. He's sitting at the Gentile table, and he's all the way down to his elbows in barbecue sauce because he's eating pork rinds, and he's eating barbecue ribs, and he's eating pork plate. He's got everything going on. He's loving it. The Gentile table is really good, and the food is really, really tasty until he looks over, and he sees some of the friends from the old neighborhood come walking in who were Jews just like him, and suddenly what Peter does, still smelling like barbecue sauce probably, he moves over and he sits at their table <laughs> because he's not supposed to be hanging out with the Gentiles whenever the boys from the old neighborhood are here. It was okay when God let him do it, but when they showed up, no, 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 no. I need to withdraw from the Gentiles, and I need to start hanging out over here with my old Jewish brothers again who believe differently that I got to adhere to a standard in order to be accepted and to be saved by God. Verse 13, Paul says it was so bad. Verse 13, the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Barnabas wasn't even from Jerusalem. Barnabas was, probably did not even run in those specific circles. But the result of Peter being wrong in his thinking, remember, disagreement ultimately expresses itself through disobedience many times. Peter here is in such sin that he is now leading astray the rest of the Jews who were with him and Barnabas as well. And Paul, two times in that one verse, verse 13, calls it all hypocrisy. And he confronts it and he steps into it and he begins to correct. Verse 14, he says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, that is key, about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, I said to Peter, in the presence of all, 
right? I dealt with this up front. I dealt with this. We would assume Paul would follow his own admonition to Timothy. He would be gentle in the way he did it, but he would be bold and he would be straightforward and he would be clear. I said to Cephas, I said to Peter in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, he's saying, why is it good enough for you to see no wrong, no distinction between hanging out with the Gentiles, but when your boys show up, now you're going to hold the, the Gentiles up to a standard that even God doesn't hold them to. He said, this is hypocritical, Peter, and you can't do this. And number one, because it's against the message of the gospel, and number two, it's leading people astray into error. And what Peter did was, he didn't, or what Paul did, he didn't judge Peter. He didn't look down on him and say, you're such a worthless Christian. You're not anywhere near the Christian that I am. He didn't do any of that. He was correcting him because he loved him, and he loved the other people who were being led astray. And sometimes we have to be the ones who correct. And sometimes we have to be the ones who were corrected. You know, it's interesting that in the midst of this book that that God saw fit to give us this specific example. And I think in in the midst of this, there's another truth, the second principle. uh, The first being, again, that, that we should all expect to be corrected and we should expect to have to correct. But number two, the second principle is that correction, at least as Scripture speaks of it, typically applies to issues surrounding truth, not opinion, right? When we talk about correcting other people, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you're suddenly the truth police where everybody on social media or everybody in your church family or everybody in your family or in your workplace, that you're just running around correcting everybody. That's not what we're talking about. It is not like an everyday occurrence. That's not the picture. And it certainly doesn't mean that we correct as it relates to opinions. That's not worth the time or effort to correct. That's not what Scripture is speaking of. What Scripture is speaking of are those instances where truth is at stake. Where sometimes one is in such error that another has to step in and correct. So how do we do that? How, how do we, how do, if, if we're the ones who have to step in at times and correct another person, how do we do that? Let me, let me give you four ways real quickly and we're done. One way we do it is, is going into that time of correction is we need to know the goal. What is the goal? If, if you ever step into someone else's life and you offer a corrective word and it's not comfortable and it's one of those calls where it's like, hey man, can we get together over lunch? I just, uh, it's something on my heart I want to talk to you about face to face. If it's one of those moments, before you ever go into it, know what the goal is. Even for you as a parent or if you're having a conversation even with your spouse, that's always fun, right? <laughs> Correcting, one of, correcting your spouse, I want to say correcting one of your spouses. That would require correction in itself. Correcting your spouse, that's always enjoyable. Being corrected by your spouse, that's always so much fun for everyone. Now, before you ever get into that conversation, before it ever begins, know what your goal is. What is the goal? The goal is not to finish the conversation with you feeling somehow superior. The goal is not somehow to direct the conversation where it comes off as you are superior. That's not the goal at all. The goal is, number one, to honor God in the conversation that's about to take place. And number two, help to get a person that you love and care about back into truth. That's the goal. It's not to win. It's not to start a fight. It's not to appear superior. It's not to come out on top. The goal is simply to honor God in the way the conversation goes and to ultimately steer them back into a place where they are in truth, where they're back in the right again. That's the goal. 
Number two, know your role, R-O-L-E. Know your role. What is your role? Your role is not to go in to be mean-spirited. Your, goal, your role is not to go in and to be uh, manipulative. Your role is not to go in and uh, get in their face and have this big blown-out argument. That's not, that's not what your role is. Your role, whenever it comes to correcting, is simply to be somewhat of a mouthpiece for God, to be used by the Lord to be able to help steer them back into His will again. It's not to shame them. It's not to be mean. Even on social media, if there's ever correction that's needed, which is rarely the case, right? That's like a horrible platform to try to offer correction. But if it were ever to be the case where you had to correct on social media, even there you would know your role. It's not to go down the wrong path. It's not to be unchristlike. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 is so helpful here. <clears throat> Paul is writing and he says, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Speaking the truth in love. Love. What is our role? Our role is to convey God's love. Our role is to convey God's truth. Our love is to convey God's compassion in a way that hopefully helps to steer a person back into truth again. That's what our role is. Again, not to win, not to be mean-spirited, not to create an argument. Number three, slow your roll. R-O-L-L. You like how all that plays out? Know your goal know your role, slow your roll. <laughs> you ever had that instance in your life where you knew that you had to correct someone and you felt compelled to do it and you couldn't wait to do it? You ever had that happen? I can't wait to see them in the hallway. Oh man, I can't wait. I hope when he walks in the door at work this week, I can't wait to see him. I hope I catch him. In the, you ever had that? You're probably not in a position where you're ready to correct, okay? And you might not even be the right person at that stage. Sometimes you just got to kind of slow your roll a little bit. You got to remember, why am I even offering correction? Number one, because it's necessary. Number two, it needs to be in a way that honors God. Number three, it needs to be in a way where I know my role. I'm simply lovingly, with gentleness, looking to steer them back into the place where they can walk in truth again. So sometimes we have to take a step back, take a deep breath. Look at how Paul conveys this to Timothy, this pastor, this young pastor in the faith. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1 and verse 2. I love the way he tells Timothy how to do this. He says, do not sharply rebuke an older man. He's not telling him don't ever correct anybody. He's telling him how to do it. Don't sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. To the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. He's kind of saying to Timothy in a way, Timothy, whenever you need to correct someone who may be your, your, uh, kind of uh, along the same line, a fellow peer, or maybe someone who is even older than you, when you have to correct them, man, don't go in there with guns blazing because you're the pastor. Don't go in there with guns blazing because you know the truth of the scriptures. You just slow your roll a little bit, Timothy. You need to take a step back and when you do this, when you have to correct, just be sure that you do it in a way that demonstrates respect and demonstrates love and demonstrates gentleness. See, it kind of keeps piling on, right? There's a way to correct. Slow your roll, Timothy, whenever you come to that place. And sometimes for many of us, man, when we get that email that just lights us up and we're ready to respond because somebody came at us or, or we, we have that conversation and somebody caught us off guard and we're playing in our minds what we're going to say the next time we see them and we're just ready to unload, let's just take that step back. And if it's an area where correction is needed and you need to correct them and help them to see what the truth is, 
take that step back and say, God, help me to do this in a way that honors you. And then number four, it doesn't rhyme with any of the other three, but I think it's a good word. Number four, accept correction yourself. Accept correction yourself. This is not about running around and just having the authority to correct people. I think you know that. But also, if we are going to correct, we need to be willing to receive correction. Proverbs has so much to say about this. Let me just close with two passages real quickly. Uh, uh, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 32. It says, he who neglects discipline despises himself. (laughs) He who neglects discipline despises himself. But he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. I think it's understood there that what the, the writer is saying is be one who responds to correction. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1, much the same thing, says it in a little more clear context. It says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. <laughs> ah, that's a pretty, yeah, that's in the Bible there, right? Any kids in here, your mom and dad said, don't say that. Keep honoring your mom and dad. Don't say that word, but, you know. It does kind of reflect a little something, doesn't it? So the picture there is that we need to be those who accept correction. I mean, disagreement is a way of life. It's going to come. It's not about avoiding. It's how we manage it. We always want to run the track of truth. It's never to be compromised. We want to run that track, that rail of relationship. They're always to be prioritized. And even when disagreement is so significant that we have to confront, we have to correct another person Just check your heart and be sure that you will be willing to accept that same level of correction if it comes your way. And when you deliver it, be sure that it is in a way that honors the Lord. Be sure it is in a way that adheres to his word, that that it is uh, uh, gentle, that it is loving, that it is without judgmentalism. And yet it is clear and it is direct with the desire to bring that person back where they need to be. And their response is going to be between them and God. We're not going to have any control over their response. But, man, you can imagine an environment of a church like this where this kind of thing takes place in love. That's an environment that's healthy of people who care enough about one another to say, hey, listen, you can't keep doing that. you got to come back right again. And whenever we're the ones who hear the message, we accept it and we follow the Lord. You know, I don't know if maybe you're sideways with anybody because of a disagreement, and maybe it was over this. Maybe you've learned a little bit of a lesson along the way of how to do it. Scripture tells us how. But don't forget that the biggest expression of reconciliation in the midst of disagreement was when Jesus died for us. That when we lived our lives in sin, it was us saying, God, we disagree with your standard, and I'm going to be the Lord of my own life. But when Jesus came and died and rose again, he invites every single one of us to quit living that life of disagreement, to quit living that life of disobedience, and to accept his forgiveness for us. And when we come to him, I'm telling you, man, he wipes the slate clean through his grace, not our works. And whenever we choose to walk with him, there are going to be times where we're going to be the instrument of his grace, offering correction, and when another will do the same for us, may we honor him in all of it and see his hand at work in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this series. Thank you for, <clears throat> thank you for the truth of your word. Something seemingly as insignificant as disagreement. Lord, you don't really hear a lot of sermons on disagreement. Lord, we experience it a lot in life, but you don't hear a lot of messages on it. Thank you that something even like that, you give us instruction in your word about how to navigate those dynamics. Lord, we've all been bent out of shape because someone dared to correct us as though we're above reproof, above correction, Lord. 
we've all mismanaged that. And then there have been times, Lord, when we've corrected another person with the wrong spirit and we loved every minute of it because it made us feel superior and we just fumbled it so badly. Lord, help us that if we ever come to a place where we need to be corrected, God, that we would take a look at our own, our own walk and we'd examine it in the light of truth and that we'd be willing to adjust as needed. And Lord, where you may put a finger on us to say, you know what, you're the one who needs to correct your friend. You're the one who needs to offer correction. May we do it in the right way, Lord, that brings about value to their lives because we love them and that honors you in the way that we do it. Lord, most of all, thank you for Jesus who didn't shame us and just blister us up one side down the other and throw lightning bolts of anger towards us, Lord. Thank you that in the midst of our disagreement, shown through our disobedience, that he died for us, that he paid the ultimate price to reconcile us, even when we don't deserve it. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. Thank you for that show of your love. And may we demonstrate it to those around us. In Jesus' name we pray.